Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Our apologies to the listeners. We were recording during a rare thunderstorm in Los Angeles, and some parts of that interview might be glitchy. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Dr. Eduardo Fabro. Dr. Fabro received his PhD from the Center of Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto. He specializes in early medieval Italy, military history, and the work of 8th century historian Paul the Deacon. In 2020, he wrote the book Warfare and the Making of Early Medieval Italy. Let's hear what he has to say about the War of the Bucket. Hi, Eduardo. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So could you start off by giving us some context? After the fall of the Roman Empire, how divided was the peninsula of Italy at the beginning of the 14th century? So it's, it's important to understand when we're talking about Italy that Italy was not a country for a long, long, long time. Italy has been a country for, uh, it became a country more recent than the United States. Wow. So it is, it is, yeah, it is a second half of the 18th century uh, creation uh, in the 18th century, Mitternich, which was this big Austrian statecraft, used to say that Italy is a geographical expression. Wow. It's not a country. And, and it hasn't been a country since, uh, mostly since the fall of the, of the Roman Empire. So, and, and that's for two big reasons there. I think they, they pertain to what we're going to talk today. One of them is the endless waves of foreign invasions. 
So we have, uh, after the Romans, we have the Goths, then we have the Lombards, then we have the Byzantines, then we have the Franks, then we have the Germans, then we have the French, we have the Spaniards, we have the Austrians. In that counting uh, nation that tried to take the entire peninsula, we do have the Normans in the south, we have the Saracens in the south. So it is, it is a, a revolving door of different nations coming in and out, mostly because Italy is very hard to conquer, it's very hard to hold. So Italy has like this big uh, plains on the north, but if you go south, is mountain after mountain after mountain. So that that becomes that makes it very different to very difficult to hold. The other point that is important is that right in the middle of Italy we have Rome and we have the papacy. So the popes play a huge role in that history, in part because the papacy claims control of the entire Christianity. They are not a country. So it's hard to say that, well, the Pope will be the country of the Pope because they would have to give up being this only head of the church. And, and although the papacy has a lot of soft power, they do not have a lot of hard power. Uh, Napoleon uh, used to ask how many legions the Pope has. So, and, and they will lose a lot of this soft power being the representatives of God on earth if they start running an army. Pope's commanding army didn't look good, doesn't look good, and I don't think will ever look good. So the popes kind of depend on either some local power that support them, but then these local powers start to think that, well, can we name the pope? Can we be? Uh, and we have a lot of that. Like the, there are periods in which like this big, usually uh, Roman families will control the papacy. They will be electing the pope because they are around there. If the cardinals or whoever is selecting the pope disagrees, they kill them. If, they, if a pope comes from abroad, they kill them. There are successions of popes that lasted a few days. And uh, so this is an option that doesn't really pay off. The other option is to resort to a foreign invader. So they will ask for help. So that's how the Franks got in. That's how the Germans got in um, to intervene. But then they are at the mercy of this big international foreign power. So the popes end up undermining any buildup uh, of internal structures. And at the same time, they will be upset when a power comes from outside and start calling the shots. So it's only when the papacy stopped being a big deal in the 19th century that uh, Italians could actually form a country. But even then, after the unified, the French sent divisions to Rome and they kept Rome independent. Wow. It was only with the war with Germany, when Germany was unifying, that the French were losing very badly, that they have to pull those troops out, that the Italians got in and unified and got Rome. So it's a long history of foreigner invasions, popes helping and disturbing, and this attempt to try to create some internal um, cohesions. A lot of confusion, I imagine, uh, you know, in those towns at the time. Uh, can you explain the difference between the uh, Guelphs? I, I, am I saying it correctly? The Guelphs and the Ghibellines? Yeah, the Guelphs and Ghibellines. Yeah. Yeah. So th this is this is part of this uh, this is part of this process. So we do have one of the big uh, foreign invasions were the Franks coming down, and because the popes asked them. So the Lombards were oppressing the popes, and the popes said, hey, we need a big friend. So the Franks come in, uh, and at some point, the, the popes are concerned whether the Franks are going to stay there or they're going to leave. Uh, the Franks want to have more legitimacy, 
So we have this big event on Christmas night, uh, 800, that the Pope crowns Charlemagne, the French king, and makes him emperor. No one really knows whether Charlemagne was like, hey, make me emperor, I like the sound of it. Or if the Pope was like, well, if, if we make you emperor, you have to stay here. But in the end of this, of this recreation of the Roman Empire, we have the, the Frankish king going back home thinking, well, I have a Pope in my pocket. And the Pope letting him go saying, well, I have an emperor in my pocket. So you create like this mixed expectations. Mm. The, the emperors think that the, the church is a division of their empire. So they can use bishops, they can use abbots to run the country. It is, it is a minimalist state. It's a state with not a lot of functionaries, uh, public servants. That doesn't exist. They need people to run it. And the emperor is like, well, can I use abbots and bishops? That's great. They don't have kids. So there's no <laughs> chance that the kid will take over and their kid will take over and that will be gone. So this is good. Everything goes kind of smoothly until the papacy starts to reform itself and become more powerful. Which was started by the emperors. The emperor said, you know, it's a mess in Italy. We don't like it. Tiny little families are creating popes. None of that works. We're going to send a guy. And so they, they selected a pope. They sent a guy. And he mysteriously died in two months. And then they sent another one who, again, dies in three months. Whoa. Finally, uh, they'll get Leo IX, which would be the most successful of these popes sent by the emperor. He walk, walks barefoot to Italy, very humble, and he's not killed. So they start to reform the church. But the moment that the church gains a little bit more of power, they start to say, wait, 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 no, no, it's not the emperor that has the church. It's the church that has the emperor. This idea of the emperor nominating bishops, that's corruption. That is a corruption of the church. And this becomes a big deal for a lot of people because suddenly you have a bishop who might be the true bishop ordained and invested, as the terminology goes, by the emperor, as we've been doing forever. Or it's a corrupt venue person who is there just to grab the money. So that splits uh, the population. Some people will say, well, the Pope is right. The Pope is on his right to end this corruption. Other people will say, what corruption? We've been doing that forever. So we do have this, this, uh, the Guelph, mostly named after the family that opposed the imperial family. So those were the Welf in Germany. And for some bizarre reason, uh, Germanic words with W become G-U uh, in Italian. So it's, it's the same, like we, we say guard, which oh. is Latin, and warden. It's the same word. The English one has the W-N. So the, the, those who supported the opposition to the emperor became the Welfs or the Guelphs. And those who supported the emperor went behind this fortress that was controlled by the Hohestaufen which is the imperial family, that uh, was called Weiblingen, and they become the Ghibellines. So that's how they split. But there's another, there's another layer of complication there. At the same time, there's a huge change happening to the lords. Those are big uh, landholders. They control a lot of territory around the cities, and they call the shots in the cities. When we get to a, about the 11th century, we see the rise of urban elites, merchants, um, tradesmen, craftsmen, the guilds, they start to become more and more powerful. So there is a clash between these new urban elite and the old to the same clash. Usually, 
the old feudal lords will support the emperor and become Ghibellines eventually when the terminology comes around. Mm. The new elite, which wants to shake things up, they do not want this bishop who is just like someone from the aristocracy that the emperor stamped. No, they want someone who is local and who they can control. What makes the whole thing very complicated is that these two alignments don't necessarily meet. And we will have uh, Guelphs that have nothing to do with the emperor, nothing to do with the pope. It's just that their family has been Guelph for generations. And wow. that's who they are now. We have families that are Ghibellines. Again, they might be aristocratic families. They might be not. They might like the, the emperor. They might have no interest in the emperor. Some cities will turn um, solid Guelph. Some cities will be solid Ghibelline. But a lot of cities will have political parties that will align with those groups. And at the moment that the Guelph family comes to power, especially because those cities are becoming republics, they're voting, they're selecting their, uh, their leaders. The moment that the, the election goes to a Guelph, there is a purge of the Ghibellines, their exiles, their murders, until the Ghibellines are back, and then we, we have the same cycle again, kicking people out. So it becomes like a very entrenched opposition, not only in between cities, but within cities. So where does Modena and Bologna stand? Where do they stand? Um, how far back does the conflict between them go? And what is at its root? So uh, Modena is more towards uh, the emperor, towards the Ghibellines. And when we get to like the mid 13th, they're solely on that camp. They did fight emperors in the past. So there's not something that always they were always Ghibellines. And they had a Guelph party too. So they, they exist in Modena. Bologna is on the other side. Bologna is solidly uh, close to the Pope and their Guelphs. So the two of them are, they're very nearby. Uh, there's a lot of competition that has nothing to do with nothing of that. There are small territories that are claimed by both cities. There are trade routes. There are families that were exiled from oh. this city and now they live here because it's really nearby. So it's a long tension. The big clash will happen in the mid-13th century, which is uh, the Battle of Fursata in 1249. The two cities come to a clash. Uh, Bologna wins, wins very strongly. It's part of an imperial campaign that Modena was defending. So the heir to the emperor, which is Frederick II, will be captured in this battle. They will be held hostage. Uh, but Bologna wins, and they control Modena for 10 years. It is wow. a big, it's a huge defeat. So that is when, like, the antagonism is at, at its highest. They are our sworn enemies. They are, they are like, the bad guys. And independent of the context, they will always be. So that's kind of like when the animosities will, like, flare up. But they continue. So they will keep on in these short, small skirmishes, and cattle raidings and all, all sorts of like little conflicts because they share borders. So it's very easy to say that, well, I think my farm, me from Modena, I think that my farm goes all the way there. Uh, oh, no, no, no. I'm from Bologna. I think that my farm goes all the way there. <laughs> and there you go. You have a small, tiny little battle between the two of them. And... So what is the myth behind the stealing, the stealing of the bucket? Is, is this accurate? So the bucket is very interesting, and I think like it, it highlights a big problem in medieval history in general. Medieval history has a problem of sources. 
So while if you, if you look at more contemporary things, you can, if you look at the Second World War, you can talk to people, you just go and ask them, they're alive. We produce so much uh, documentation nowadays that it's impossible to go over everything. In the Middle Ages, there's a lot of things that are just like covered by one person. So we do have a number of mentions of the battle, of the Battle of Zappolino in different sources. Even Petrarch mentions that as a sad thing that happened, but we don't have any details. The only detail is by this Bolognese um, historian called Matteo Griffoni. So Griffoni is the person who wrote it is in his history, in his Chronicles of Bologna. He has a paragraph about a paragraph. That's it. <laughs> That's all we have. It's just a paragraph. And I would say 20% of the paragraph is him naming names. This noble, this person, that person. Uh, he wrote that about 100 years from the battle. He was born in 1351, so 25 years after the battle was over. And he was writing that by the end of his life. Uh, so that is already like one voice that we have to take into account. Uh, and he doesn't say anything about any bucket. There's nothing in there about that. The bucket becomes a thing more with another person, which is a poet called Alessandro Tassoni. And Tassoni will write this, uh, this poem called uh, La Secchia Rapita, or the bucket, the stolen bucket, or the kidnapped bucket. It's actually, it's actually very funny. So he, uh, he will create this story. He's trying to create a new genre, which he calls Eroi Comico, which is the mix between Eroico, hero, heroes, epic, and comic. So every single, every single, and it turns out into something funny. So he, he writes the story. He does say in the prologue that he's talking about that bucket that is now kept in the archives in Modena. Is, was there? It's hard to say. It's, hard to say. It's, it's not as today that you can say, oh, is it? I'm going to check. No, the archives were closed. No one had access to the archives. You could not go that and see if it existed. But he mentions that. What he writes is this, um, it's this big battle. The chronology is all over the place. It doesn't really work out. Uh, but Modena would have stolen this bucket and uh, Bologna assets back. And you start to have like this big fight. Uh, the way he describes that is a big fight between the two cities and the gods will be playing, defending their sides. So the gods are divided too. All of that is a play on the Trojan War and the Iliad. That's what he's trying to do. And the Trojan War, the, the cause, is the ah. kidnapping of Helen of Troy. So Helen is kidnapped, and they all fight over because of Helen. Even the term he used for the bucket, which is rapita, is the term that will produce rape in English. The term means this seizure, usually of a woman, against not her will, but the will of her so, because of course, consent existed. It was just with the family, not mm. with the woman. Right. So, so what he's writing, and again, it is. If you think of it, is it's it's funny. He's talking. He's just rewriting the Trojan War, and instead of fighting over, I mean, the, the role of Helen of Troy is played by a bucket. This is hilarious. It it, it works. This comment. So, can you walk us through the Battle of Zapolino? Uh, first, what actually instigated it? Uh, yeah, what instigated the battle? So uh, the battle, again, it's part of this ongoing conflict between these two sides. So the, 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 the broader context is we do have from 1310s, we have a number of emperors trying campaigns 
in northern Italy, they are somewhat successful. And that emboldens uh, Modena to be a little bit more aggressive uh, with its neighbors. In the following decade, uh, Pope John XXII will have a pushback, he has a new alliance with the French, he has some resources, so he starts pushing back against um, the imperial gains, which again emboldens Bologna to start doing the same. So this is like the, 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 the first shot is Bologna starting to raid territories from Modena just to get some loot to destroy some things and to make a statement. So this is how the, the, this round of the conflict starts. Uh, in response, Modena sieges a fortress that belonged to Modena. They go there and the, whoever is holding the fortress said, you know what? Great, we don't like those guys. We take it, it's yours. It's good to keep in mind that in the, la- in the previous 20 years, uh, Bologna has exiled a lot of immigrants, a lot of them. We, we estimate that about 10,000 wow. people were actually kicked out of the city. Yes. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. A lot of them will be in Modena. A lot of them are there. So we do have already yeah, this Yeah, they're upset, uh, this I'm sure. <laughs> they're upset. And again, it's not, they, they don't have nationalities. So these are aristocratic people. They're living in Modena that is now an aristocratic city. They have friends. They have supporters. Uh, on the other hand, Bologna is still seeing Modena as the place where their exiled bad people went. So what uh, Modena will, uh, what Bologna will do is try to, to recapture that fortress. And Modena will preempt that, and they will launch an attack to counter that. And that's where the war uh, happens. That's when the, the Battle of Zeppelino happens, which again, we're talking about an affair of about two hours. It started in the wrong time. It started at sunset, which means that again, there are no uniforms. There is no artificial light. So you imagine that as soon as the sun sets, <laughs> things get very confusing in a medieval battle. You do not want to be like, are, are you Bob that lives across the street? Okay, so you're on my side. I don't recognize you. So yeah, so the, the whole thing ends up quite uh, quite quickly. So the Bolognese, though, outnumbered the Modenese by about 25,000 troops. Yet in the end, they lose. Why is that so? And how did the Modenese outsmart them? Yeah, th- there is a problem there. And uh, I will, uh, Bologna, and that we do have a census from uh, 1324. Counted, all souls, everyone, men, women, old people, everyone, about 42,000 people. Very hard to put 30,000 people on the field. Very hard. I mean, you're meaning that you're bringing in like pretty much everyone who was not sleeping. <laughs> so the numbers might uh, Grifoni. He, he grew up in a, a Bologna that was aristocratic and that um, he saw the return of this more Republican rule. He didn't like it. And the fall of this Republican rule before he started writing. The Bologna of the War of the Bucket is a Republican. If you read his description, he's talking not about the common folk, they have no value, they, they're worthless. So he's, he's hyping those numbers just to say, this is what happens when you have a republic and the masses make decisions. So the masses of the unwashed bolognese, they were defeated by a few good men, good aristocratic men. Interesting. From, uh, from modern. But what he's described makes sense. So Modena has about 5,000 uh, food. So they have like, which if it is a well-disciplined infantry, they're very effective. 
if they're facing uh, actually just people with weapons, they can be quite effective. Think about a riot control police against like a mob. You have way fewer policemen just like with like tactics and training and their shields and they're holding back. So what they would do, they will pin them down all the foot from uh, Bologna. And then they will use their cavalry to just like flank them and, and take them down. It works. It works. Even if there were 30, 30 something thousand Bolognese against about 5,000 um, Modenese, it would have worked. I would question those numbers. Oh, actually, on both mm. sides. Uh, medieval sources, we, when we talk numbers, we talk numbers. If I tell you there is a dozen people, you'll be expecting 12. In the Middle Ages, no one cared about that. So if there's a lot, you would throw a big number. <laughs> If there is, if there's a few, there's a few. I think like the best, the best description of this process is actually a joke. So we, you have like this, uh, it's a, a soldier and the commander on the walls, and there's an enemy army approaching, and the soldier looks and say, "Well, there are a million and three coming." Ah, uh, medieval times are crazy. Um, so. What is the agreement that the two cities come to after the battle uh, has been fought? Why is this bucket never returned? So uh, here's what, what happens, what we know that happens. So uh, Modena routes the Balinese army. They scatter. They burn a number of fortresses and capture a number of forces toward Bologna. And they, they get to Bologna, but they don't, they don't siege it. They host a palio. So essentially, they throw a barbecue and a party in front of Bologna to humiliate the damned Bolognese, which makes a lot of sense. The theory, people want to see a bucket somewhere, would see that when they retreated, they got the bucket. But this doesn't come out in the sources. It's hard to say if that happened. But they pull back. Uh, in the following year, the, uh, the Bolognese come to an agreement with Modena. And it sounds like they bribed some high official. They gave him money. And this guy pocketed all this money and returned everything uh, the Modernists took. I think that that's where mm. the bucket might have come from. If, if uh, Tassoni did not make that all up completely, it might be because at the end of all that, we have about 2,000 people dead. And people are more like, and what do we get? Nothing. We get nothing. So there's a bit of a wordplay that because uh, loot in Italian is saccheggio and uh, saccia is the bucket. So it might be just a, a workplace, like all you get is a bucket. That, oh. um, yeah, that is that is all that you earn with like your dead relatives and your, that might be where it comes from. And eventually, especially when the poem comes out in the 17th century, someone says, well, the bucket is famous. Maybe someone walking to the archive and say, well, I would pay good money to see that bucket. And someone in the archive said, you said good money. Yeah, we keep it in the back. Uh, give me some time and I will fetch the bucket. Yeah, very important for us. Uh, so I, I don't think I don't think like Bologna has any claim on the bucket. <laughs> I think it, it sounds it sounds as ridiculous as you coming to your father and saying, you know, when you took my nose, I want it back. <laughs> also, okay, so there's no bucket. At the end of the day, if you had to blame a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the war of the bucket. Who or what would that be? I think the blame there is on that polarization between Guelph and Ghibelline. I think that's, that's what you blame, is when this when uh, disagreement becomes dissent and dissent becomes like these entrenched feuds. And that's what we have. We will have 
a war that could actually be described for a bucket because it didn't mean anything. They did not have different uh, goals. They didn't have different politics. They just disliked each other because they disliked each other. So I think, I think there's a little bit of a lesson there on how this kind of polarization uh, can become very dangerous, especially when you start peeling off the differences and all that is left is this hatred. So that, that's, that's, that will be my, my main um, my main culprit. I think that is what, because not only that, but a lot of bloodshed in Italy and kept Italy a combination of warring principalities and cities until the 19th century. Eduardo, thank you so much for speaking with us today and giving us a medieval history lesson. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. How about Eduardo? Uh, he was so wonderful. I wish I could take a, a medieval class of his, right? Medieval, medieval history class. You know, mm -hmm. it's so difficult to understand medieval history, but I really feel like he explained it in a way that was relatable. He did. Mm -hmm. He gave us like, you know... a really great sort of broad strokes and then got specific when he needed to. He was excellent. I would have loved him as a teacher. Um, and one of my favorite moments of the interview was when he said, you know, don't worry about the numbers. 
Um, because as a fact checker, when I ha- I can take that off my plate. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Well, he said he said it. He said, you know, don't really worry about the numbers. It could have been five thousand. It could have been thirty thousand. Like there were thirty thousand Bolognese, uh, you know, Bolognese. So, you know, look. If I can take something off my plate as a fact checker, I I always take that opportunity. I get mm-hmm. I give the guys the the rest of the night off, the guys and the gals, the the team, the mm-hmm. rest of the night okay. off. Um, for me, the one of the most interesting parts of the uh that lesson was understanding that there were families that had been exiled. I mean, when he said there were about like ten thousand families that had been exiled from Bologna to Modena. It really made sense to me mm-hmm. why there was so, the the feud was so strong, right? You know, because if if I had been kicked out of Los Angeles and I had to be, I'd been sent down to San Diego, mm-hmm. I'd be like, I hate Los Angeles. I have to leave my whole house, everything, and I'm starting over in San Diego. I don't want to be here. Like they were big on exiling, which tells sure. you a lot about travel at those times. It must mm-hmm. have been really hard to get around. Whereas mm-hmm. today, exiling is not a big deal. You could just hop on a plane, train, or automobile and just sort of. I mean, exile yourself to a vacation. I don't. Th- uh, yeah, sure, a vacation because you know you're going to go back. But I think exile is still a pretty big deal, Chris. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> having to leave everything and your family <laughs> it's not just like how you get sure. there <laughs> um yeah i guess now when you think of it in context this of refugees true. yes exile yes is not a good i think thing. so i guess i was just in your like i was just imagining myself moving down to san diego i'd be like all right you were a, thinking about the trek you weren't thinking about everything you were sure gonna we leave could find behind. a nice two-bedroom there i mean just be, uh-uh. it's different different yeah though, different though. different times now what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail, Clayton? Because Eduardo, uh, you know, put it so succinctly and well, you know, he ended up, you know, uh, blaming he, essentially yes. the just the polarization. The, the polarization, exactly. And what, and what we ended on was tribalism, which I think is like spot on kind of right like the the polarization uh-huh. between these two people the tribalism between these two groups of people and we gave the big slap to the church state rivalry mm, which still kind of tracks right right i think so yeah yeah all right a, a I lot mean, of the early part of the interview he went on about that and just about the seesaw that was the power of the church and versus the state or or you know as it was the feudal cities of italy which was fascinating too, learning about how Italy, the country, came to form after America, the country. Yeah, you don't really think about that when you think of Europe. You're like, oh, it's an established country for thousands, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. But no, um, it was mm-hmm. not. Okay, so Europe is actually a continent, not a country. Which is crazy. No, I know. I think. Sorry, the countries in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's what I meant. <laughs> It's just crazy how much we learn every day. Okay. <laughs> okay. You thought Exile's not a big deal. So <laughs> you literally said <laughs> Exile, not exile. a big deal. I was thinking my exile to San okay. Diego. Say, I would love for you to say that to my Cuban family. Um, <laughs> mm, yeah. That'll go exile. Over well. What's the big that'll deal? Why, why are you holding on to it? What's the problem? <laughs> you got a nice two bedroom here in Miami. 
Um, no, I, I, I really appreciated uh, Eduardo's lesson. And um, I think that you're right, Clayton. I think if, if we understand just like how polarizing in the context of polarization, I think the tribalism of it all, it still makes sense mm-hmm, and it holds mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. Shockingly, we were. I think so. <laughs> I think we did a good job. Yeah. Me too. We were nervous about that. But again, let's remember the numbers. Don't worry about the numbers and also in, medieval, the, in medieval times. We had a numbers lesson, math lesson, and we had a word lesson, a vocabulary lesson. I we know. Sajekio, uh, saccheggio, which is loot in Spanish, in Italian, <laughs> which is loot in Italian, sort of sounds like bucket. And so, you know, this all could have been sort of a wordplay type yes. of and scenario. It also yeah. taught us about the, the power of comedy writers. It's true. (laughs) The hybrid hero comedy that was written as the poem. Um, So, I mean, it's been wonderful. Um, I I can't wait to have Eduardo back. We're going to have to cover some uh, more medieval uh, tragedies Mm -hmm. so that we can have him come back. Um, And everyone, stay tuned because next week we're going to be talking about the South L.A. fireworks explosion. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.